Sport Calgary assists, supports, and influences the growth of sport in Calgary. As the voice of sport in Calgary, we connect Calgarians and sport. Hiya, hiya, how you doing? You good? Everybody's good? Uh, I hope you're good. Welcome to uh, Sport Calgary's original Six Feet Conversation podcast. I would be Rob Kerr. Uh, My guess is you know who you are, so uh, appreciate that. Glad If you're finding this for the first time, Wow! Did you pick a uh, <laughs> a heck of a podcast? Of, if you know, if it's your first one, this one's a good one. Uh, really looking forward to this. Uh, we'll get into uh, the guest in just a second. Uh, if uh, you have not been here before, or you know what I would suggest, go to Spotify, go to I, uh, Apple Podcasts, and subscribe. And then you won't miss them. Um, really, uh, kind of changing up the format a little bit. Going to a Monday, Wednesday, Friday drop. Uh, but glad you could be here. Full disclosure: friend of mine, guy that I have a. T- ton of respect for. Um, I really do look to this guy um, for kind of the, the, the what's right and, and what's just about sport, to be perfectly honest. Um, I tend to be an advocate for kids just getting out and being active. I have a tendency to avoid high-performance sports as much as I can in my own life and, and tend to work with kids with um, you know, rec backgrounds or, you know, aren't very, you know, not, not the next superstars, but just love being around sport and, and there's value in that and just participating And not everything has to be a race to the top. Um, there's lots of valuable lessons that sport teaches us in life. And I feel that personally myself, I've benefited from that for a long, long time. And well, it seems a little ridiculous to refer to a gold medalist from the Olympics in that regard. That's exactly what it is. Uh, Duff Gibson, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, he is a uh, Olympian, uh, won gold in skeleton back in 2006, has coached skeleton. Uh, but for the purposes of this conversation, holds two other very important jobs. One, he is a captain with the Calgary Fire Department, and we will get into that conversation and some really cool things that, that Duff is going to share with us that I think are, are pertinent and timely. As well, he uh, runs a little company called Dark Horse Athletic, and Dark Horse Athletic is it's really the epitome of just getting kids active and being active and, and multi-sport. I'm going to let Duff explain it a little bit, but huge, huge fan of Duff Gibson. So I'm glad he could spend some time with us. Uh, by the way, I want you to make sure uh, you check out Sport Calgary. Why? Because you want the latest in Calgary sports updates in one place. Sign up for Sport Calgary's newsletter. And the latest monthly updates will be sent straight to your inbox. Sign up at sportcalgary.ca. And to be perfectly honest, they're coming a little more fast and furious than every month. Sport Calgary's doing an excellent job of keeping abreast of what's going on with COVID-19 and how that's impacting sport and recreation facilities here in our city. So that's worthwhile. Let's get to it, shall we? This one, and by the way, watch for the false ending. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Watch for the false ending. My friend and yours, Duff Gibson. Okay, let me start here. First of all, you are the third firefighter on this podcast and the second uh, skeleton athlete. So you're not exactly breaking ground, Duff. It was Chris Cedarstrand, and who was the other one? Randy Chevrier. Oh, of course, of course. Three-time Grey Cup champion. If I don't mention that, he gets mad. Um, and I met him relatively recently because he has a kid about the same age as one of my kids, and I and it must be must be Tay, who's just turned thirteen. That's about right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Now, what's what's Tay into? Is he into lacrosse, or is he into football, or is he into hockey, or where would we have crossed paths? He uh, he does hockey, he does lacrosse, and he does baseball. Okay. And now officially the lacrosse season is canceled, but uh, baseball there's still a chance, I guess. But I imagine that will be canceled shortly. But hockey was not interfered with at all. Oh, he wasn't one of the teams that got kind of caught at the end in the playoffs? <laughs> they got caught in the playoffs sooner than <laughs> other people. <laughs> That's all right. We learned from those mis- those lessons too, yeah. right? They they all they all matter. Um, let me ask you one, prof- well, maybe more than one, but a professional question. Um, thank you for what you're doing. First of all, I think that's important for the listeners of this podcast. Um, we say that all the time, and sometimes it, it just feels like we're talking air, but you're on the front line of all of this. Um, how are you holding up professionally? Professionally has not been a problem. Okay. I, I would say that there are other people doing more work than I am, certainly. And quite honestly, my role as a captain is to stand back and make sure everybody is following the procedure exactly to the letter and it's amazing how many ways in which you catch yourself if you don't have someone standing back going okay you are you are wearing the rubber glove but you touch the gate and then you grab the handle of the truck door like that's literally my role at mm-hmm. this at this moment whereas i have uh members on the the truck who follow a protocol that was developed four or five years ago, do you remember when Ebola yeah, showed up sure, again? Sure. Like if there was one or two cases in Chicago or something. Yeah. Well, our video is from four years ago or whenever that was. So it's literally two layers of everything with duct tape, with tags so that it's easy to remove with the cavicide spray to kill anything that's on the outside of the suit and all these procedures. And I just stand back and say, you're ne- don't forget this and your next step is there. But what I wanted, and I, I listened to your podcast with uh, Chris, yeah. and what I wanted to add was that for a solid three weeks there, it seems like we may have gone to one catalog alarm or something that was fire-related, and essentially all of that stopped, and all we did was go to medical calls, where time after time, an EMS crew would drive very quickly to get there first so that we didn't have to do anything. And I feel like, you know, there are signs on people's lawns saying healthcare workers and so on. And I, you know, I've talked to a few other firefighters who, who have said the same thing, that this was their experience also. And I'm not, I don't, I only work in, or I switched halls actually halfway through the, uh, the, the self quarantine sort of thing. Uh, and it's my experience only at two halls around the city, and, and it is what other people are saying, but EMS, they are busting their ass, and you know, it, I go out of my way to try and buy them a coffee or mm-hmm. when their truck's in the hall to wash their truck for them as some way of saying, hey, I, you know, as, a, as another first responder, I really appreciate the effort that they're going to so that only three, two or three people have to go in there instead of four or five, and so... That's that's from someone who can see beyond the superficial who is actually responding to some of these calls. That's who really isn't getting enough credit, in my view. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, and this does not it's not it sounds funny. It's not intended to be funny, but I'm sitting at home 
right? So all yeah. I'm seeing the world, I'm seeing the world through social media. I'm seeing the world on television. You know, I see it, I guess, when I take the dog out for a run. But, you know, to hear you tell it that way, that's really special stuff. That, that, that's, you know, frontline stuff that I, I hope people appreciate and hear and go, that's pretty incredible. That's pretty incredible that they're looking after their brethren that way. They are. And they, they, there hasn't always been a wonderfully positive, supportive relationship between those two services. Hmm. And I would say the same between fire and police, actually. Um, and that, since I, I've been on for just over 20 years now, and when I started, it was a rivalry. Yeah. And there was a lot of friction between EMS and fire. And that has, you know, I'm sure someone listening who's a firefighter or an EMS worker would, you know, somewhere around the city will have a complaint or something. But overall, it is dramatically better and i you know that's just a unsolicited shout out to the job that ems is doing right no now. I, I i love it i love it um because really yours you and and chris and, and randy are unique um because you come from that sport background and you're now in real life but in so many of the elements will benefit and one of those is leadership and i you're truly one of the best leaders i know in all the sport and here you are a captain for the fire department talk to me about being a leader which you just brought up something kind of cool too you've switched in the middle of this which means you now have to get to know a new team and a new team has to get to know you so there's probably some unique uh, leadership challenges that you're going through right now well yeah yes and no if if i had moved to the northeast part of the city for example that's somewhere that i have worked in uh, a week or two, 15 years ago, kind of a thing. Okay. I'm I'm shifting within areas that I'm. Oh, okay, okay, so okay. Not- so they know you then. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Again, I learned something else about the fire department today. <laughs> um, having said that, still as a leader. Um, you know, you're talking about having to be that, you know, kind of those eyes, that extra set of eyes and making sure that the procedures are taking place. The other part of this is probably the mental health of your staff and watching that stress and strain. What have you been doing to try and and help and aid and pay attention to that? Well, part of it, frankly, is uh, when you come to work, I I leave the rest of my family at home where they've been for weeks and weeks and weeks and I'm not at home. I'm going somewhere else and I'm seeing some, uh, you know, there's a professional relationship there, but it, it's, it's essentially friends and people who are close to my age and have similar likes and, and it's mentally, it's a real break for me and it's very enjoyable. It's a, it's a job that I really enjoy doing. So in essence, I, I probably get them at their best and they probably get me at my best because it's a break from the routine and we can, you know, part of our job is to be out in the community. So we're not stuck in the fire hall either. And we're at least driving around. And, uh, I don't know if you've, if you talked to Chris or Randy about this, but we've been doing birthdays. I want to ask you about that. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely nonstop. So, uh, you know, you drive around, there's someone in their yard, you know, whether it's a scheduled birthday or not, it's a very common thing. We drive around and we turn the lights on and we flip the siren off and on and off a few times and get lots of waves and smiles. And it's, it's a little bit different because we, uh, a fire engine will typically drive around with a stack of coloring books and we can't have any actual contact or yeah. you can't throw a coloring book out the window because it's gone from one set of hands to another. Sure. So it's a little bit different there, but the, the birthday parties have been fun and 
and you know it's it's the same old thing it's lights and siren and it's it's uh, it brings out the best in you to see how you are perceived by the rest of the world or 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 by a young person who who thinks it's awesome or talks about firefighters and and fire trucks because they're a young kid and that's what some young kids do and you 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 see that impression and you it makes you want to live up to it so it's a wonderful thing for them and us i think definitely i don't know where that's who started that where did that idea come from it's such a brilliant idea Okay, now someone's going to be frustrated with me because someone in particular, and I don't even know what shift it is. There's sort of there's four shifts, and there's yep. a pseudo rivalry, I'd say. There's 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 pride. Sure, within. absolutely. Okay, I'm on I'm on C shift. Yeah. So that's the best shift, and I see you nodding while we're talking, so you know that. But yeah. um, there's a little bit of a rivalry <laughs> there, and uh, I it wasn't. I don't think it was C shift that started, but it, but it. There was one birthday, basically, and they they went above and beyond, and they, I want to say it was thirty station. So I got, I think I have the station right, but I don't know the I don't know the shift. But they have an aerial ladder there, and they they did something where they set up the aerial in the street and they extended the ladder like right to the front porch or some <laughs> some silly thing like that. And I mean that's what we would do anyway. Like someone will say, oh, you can't respond to an emergency. Well, that's we'll pull out in the tarmac and we'll practice this. You have to practice doing that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So to do it on the street for a kid who's having a birthday, that's that's no different for us. And uh, so someone did it once. The chief thought it was a wonderful thing and it was great PR. And and, you know, it's a time where people could use some novel, something different. And so it's been so well received and it gets us out and about and meeting our community also. And so. Uh, it, the number has, you would be shocked at the number. I don't know if, I don't know if you've heard any of the numbers, but, uh, uh, our, our hall had 15 the last time I was at work wow. for one day. Yeah. And yeah. we, at my station, number eight here, uh, in the Southwest, we have three trucks. So that's only five each, but at, the, at other stations in the South, um, in Seton there, that's just one engine and they had 18 on one day a few weeks ago. Oh, so wow. I think that must be a young kid part of the city. But, uh, uh, Seton would be, yeah. There'll be a legacy out of this, won't there, Duff? Like, I mean, this is going to be a uh, – kids are – this is something the kids wouldn't have seen, and now they're getting to see it. There will be a legacy from this. You, you mean a uh, – A positive a legacy. I think, you know, when yeah. I grew up, you wanted to be a fireman, you wanted to be a, a police officer and that sort of thing. There was, you know, some real gravitas to being a public servant like that. I, I think there's a legacy to this. Well, I, be, I bet you you're right. And it, I remember you asking Chris, yeah. you know, why you become a firefighter. And he talked about being a kid, dreaming of being a firefighter. That was never me. But, uh, but maybe, you know, if you had – on your sixth birthday, a truck pull up and a siren and, and, you know, they're, you're, you're, you're literally looking up to them and it seems like the coolest yeah. thing you've ever seen that probably leaves an imprint. And that's a, that's a good thing. Outside of that, how, how will life change for us? What are you seeing out there? I mean, you mentioned again, the kind of the, the, the deadening of the rivalries and the working together and professionally, but what do you think happens coming out of this that you're observing? Uh, but just between the services? Well, you're out there. I'm not. I mean, even in the community. 
Yeah, it's hard. I, I, it's funny because I hear stories about uh, people intentionally, you know, uh, ignoring the social distancing and complaining. There's a there's a a guy at my fire hall who has friends who live in Kelowna, and there's a backlash against the Alberta license plates in yeah. Kelowna, sort of thing. So. I hear stories like that, but I haven't seen anything like that. I, I see people outside. Right. I see people waving and smiling and being active and being outdoors. And um, I'm not I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, a Dr. Gray wrote a you know a psychologist wrote a book, did a few TED talks. So um, his thing is that our scheduled play, our the mental health of young people is directly proportional to the amount of time they have scheduled or inversely proportional to the amount of time that they have scheduled. So in the 1950s, where in the United States at least, they literally taught the kids what to do during an air raid, you know, in the event of a nuclear war, hide under your wooden desk. And the mental health of a young person in 1950 was better than it was in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And now, and they say it's that the only thing that it tracks with directly is how much scheduling we're doing for our young people. So for my kids, at least, I see that firsthand and I see them, they're quite happy and they're kind of getting along with each other. And they're, for the first time in their lives, they're asking me, imagine that, uh, for what to do for a workout and I'm giving them, you know, they're actually making progress and following a routine and this sort of thing. And, uh, I think in, in some ways it's been wonderful. Thank you for getting me here. We got here a little sooner than I thought we were going to get here, but thank you for getting me here. You are, as far as I'm concerned, the guru that I look to and follow, because I think you do better job than anybody I've seen about, uh, in terms of, um, Avoiding early specialization of of the, the the importance of play, the importance of multi sport, the importance of just being a kid. Um, you know, one of the things you're you're certainly promoting through this is the I love a challenge. Do you think we're gonna like I'm buoyed when I go out in the community? There's people in the parks again. There's fathers and sons and mothers and daughters kicking balls around and catch playing catch. And these are things I don't see. I haven't seen them in my parks before. Like I I'm. That's the thing that I kind of wonder is not maybe the legacy of this a bit. Yeah, you know what it, it reminds me? It, I find my, I have to catch myself because Dark Horse is the name of yep. my the company that my wife and I started. Originally, we started it as a reaction to the negative aspects of youth sport. Right. But then I came to realize, as I was invited in schools, for example— that physical education and just mental and physical well-being is a bigger picture that that is related to sport, but it's a bigger idea than sport, and yep. it's on the table also, yep. based on how we are, you know, overscheduling, over over practicing sports when you and I were kids. Mm-hmm. It was, and I'm assuming you're of a similar generation of me, where the parent the norm for parenting was why are you inside the right. sun is the right. sun is up you know yep. and it, and as young people we needed to be you know like any kid if we had the choice yes we would probably just lie on the couch and watch television we needed to be made to go outside 
and then once we were outside, we needed to be made to come back inside. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I look at uh, David Epstein's uh, book Range, which which his it has come up so many times on this podcast. I just want to point that out. Well, it's you know what it's what I was going to say was, you know, Steve Norris. I don't know if you yes, I haven't had Doctor Norris on yet. No. Okay, so. David Epstein and Steve Norris, you should put them on the, I don't know if you, how easy it would be to get David Epstein or Steve for that matter. But if you want the data and the research, yep. I'll just repeat what they say. Yep. But it's, it's what I knew intuitively from my childhood, which was go outside. And at least in the summer, you know, in, in school, now we're looking at three or four hours a day, maybe, but it's go outside and play a variety of different sports all day, like, you know, and if you're playing street hockey, imagine it's game seven mm -hmm. of the Stanley Cup final because that's part of the fun. Mm -hmm. Or build a ramp for your skateboard or a jump for your bike or play, you know, kick the can or whatever it is. It's a, or, or skateboard. You know, it's a myriad of skills that you are developing. Right. And right. what might be more important than the skills or at least as important as the skills is you are developing a love of the game. And you are developing a desire to participate for no external reward. There's no uniform. There's no championship belt that yep. they handed out on my block for which, you know, group of randomly divided friends would happen to win that game. In fact, uh, I think it's a great testament to the foundation we were getting by the fact that we never kept score. Right. And, you know, and you and I, uh, being of the same generation, will say we never kept score until someone had to go in, and then it was blank. Yep. Next goal wins. That's right. And that's the only time we ever kept score. Yep. And so what is that saying? That's, that's you're not doing it because anyone's bribing you or the snack that you get 15 minutes into youth soccer or whatever, whatever it is, or there's no trophy. It's just a love of the game. And I think back to the kids I've reconnected with a lot of the kids on my block just through Facebook over the years. Mm -hmm. And many of them still play hockey, still coach their kids or still are involved because yeah. it was never a job. It was always something that you would do for fun. And Oh, by the way, it's great for your mental and physical health. But, and, and I'll put aside what I just mentioned before, like what we're in right now is kind of maybe a reboot, but prior to this pretty scary territory. Like, there was some pretty stunning research done about how little kids go outside. Pretty stunning research about how now we're in a, a kind of, we were in an era of having to recruit parents to allow their kids to play. Like, that that's the craziest thing. And I think, you know what, I keep, I started to say this before, actually, and I got sidetracked, but I, I have to check myself because I always talk, tie it back to elite sport because, yes, wellness is the bigger picture and health. And are you still doing it when you're 60? Yeah. That's the bigger picture, but it's, it's not even working for youth sport either. It's not even working for developing youth athletes or, or, or senior level athletes. And I thought, you know, like uh, Steve Norris will say, okay, you got to check out this study and I'll, I'll look at that. And that's a more detailed, but if you look at David Epstein's current Ted talk, which mm -hmm. is the material from range, like he'll just show you a graph and, and, and talk in very general terms and you apply it to your sport as you see fit. But it's like, here is 
and, and, it, and it describes perfectly, in my opinion, what the problem is. If you make a kid do hockey, or maybe the kid's begging you. I don't mean to imply yeah, yeah. that you're making yeah, yeah. it. Maybe the kid's begging you to play hockey 11 months of the year. If you do that for a seven-year-old, by the time they're 10, they're really, really good at hockey. They're really, really skilled. And then, and if you're familiar with the graph and the, and the TED Talk, it's then it sort of ends. And then the, the kids who are lucky enough to do A, do it for fun, B, do nine things instead of one thing, they pass the kids who just did whatever it was. And so it doesn't even work from an, from an elite sport perspective. If that's your only criteria, which, which you and I would agree is yeah. not a, should not be the most important thing, but you're, you're sacrificing that as well by doing it. So how did we it serves no purpose? How did we get here? How did we end up where we in we are? In this conversation, you mean? No, <clears throat> that I know. I turned on play or record, and away we went. How did we end up with so much pressure on young kids at such an early age with unreasonable expectation? Well, I think I think because in the short term it works. Okay. I think I think it's a formula for making a great 12-year-old. And I, and I say, that's how I describe the youth sports system. Mm-hmm. We designed a system as if the ultimate goal was to have the world's greatest 12-year-old. And there are you can see uh, parents in every diamond arena, whatever it is, who carry themselves as if the greatest pride in their life is the fact that their 12-year-old is very good at whatever it is. That's, I think that's part of it. Uh, I think it's, uh, I saw Sport Calgary brought a guy by the name of... Uh, John O'Sullivan. Bob. Oh, sorry? Yeah, same same idea. Okay. Um, but Bob Bigelow came... Yes, like, yes, after. yeah, okay. Do you yeah. remember? Yeah, I do, yep. Former Boston Celtics player? That's right, player. yep. And his his theory was, you know, and, and it, it tied into my own athletic career as well, but he said, you've got... Uh, Edwin Moses, at age 14, nothing to nothing really spectacular. Three within three years of that, or four years of that, began a 10-year undefeated international undefeated streak, including world championships and Olympics and world records yep. in the 110 or the 400 hurdles. Uh, Michael Jordan, cut in grade 10 from his high school basketball team within four years, starting for North Carolina, playing at an NBA level. Um, and what we remember, and that ties into my own, you know, when I was 14, I wrestled 97 pounds. So I was literally half, half the person I am today, or was I, <laughs> yeah, the athlete, yeah, yeah. I, would, I guess as, uh, yeah. you know, the Olympics or whatever, but what really sticks, what really meshes with our intuition is the Tiger Woods story, which is. Gave him a club when he was two, on Johnny Carson when he was four, greatest golfer in the world before he was uh, out of his teenage years. Yep. And it's and that's it's wrong, or it's wrong on many, many levels, but it's intuitive that if you want someone to be good, you should do more and do it sooner. Yeah. And so that's that's why we do it. It's the exception, not the rule. Really. It's the exception, not the rule. It is, it is. And the exceptions stick in our brain. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah. it's funny, as you're going through that list, one of the conversations I had was with Sam Effa. And I love the Sam Effa story. 
wasn't in sport at all, not even touched it, not even close. And then in high school, somebody puts him on the track team three years later, he's representing Canada. Like, like just let them, just let them be kids. Just let them figure it out. And then, which leads me to the other part is, why do we, why do we hate failure so much? Why are we taking failure away from kids? Duff, why are we taking kids away from failure? Well, uh, I've spent a lot of my time reframing the question so failure isn't so personal. Oh, okay. So why does a seven-year-old, you know, in our, in our program, parents, we, I, I always say we're batting a thousand with the parents who come to us and say, um, my kid doesn't like sports or my kids, do, my kid doesn't like competition or doesn't like this particular sport or that particular sport because you reframe it. So they understand they, they see, here's where it ties back to elite sport. They frame it so that they realize it, it really doesn't matter how you compare it to the other seven-year-old. It's, do you learn something? Did you, did you get a little better? Isn't that kind of fun? You know, um, we're all suited for some things and not suited for others. So the example I always use, and I have to change it because no 10-year-olds know who Shaq is anymore, which I, <laughs> which I find hard to believe because he's one of the all-time characters in sure, sports. Sure. But, it's, but it's, there's a guy who was 315 when he was spelt, you know, and is, and is at his position, I would argue, the best ever. Mm-hmm. How many chin-ups do you figure that guy could do now that he's cl- probably close, at least closer to 400 than 300. Yeah. Okay. So does that mean he's not a good athlete and the kids go, Oh, of course he's one of the, he's a, that's a, that's a laughable question. He's one of the greatest of all time. Okay. But the fact that half of you sitting here today could beat him in chin-ups, doesn't that just show you that we're all suited for some things and not suited for others? So you as a seven-year-old, how ridiculous is it that you would be embarrassed to try basketball because there's another seven-year-old who did it before you? You worry about you and see if you can get a little better. And quite honestly, like you, I had a conversation with Bonnie Blair yep. years ago, or, or she had retired, but I, I knew one of her teammates and I was working on a blog at the time and it was, and you talk to her and it's, it's the same mindset as the Claire Hughes of the world or, or anybody else. And you, and you talk to her when she won gold in the 500, she won gold in the thousand. And she says it was every bit as a triumph and a, and a success and a wonderful, exciting race for her to get the fourth place finish in the same Olympics because she destroyed the American record and did so much better than she ever anticipated that she would. And you, you look at a Bonnie Blair and there's plenty of examples like like her, mm-hmm. you know, the, the elite of the elite, the absolute best. And you, you imagine, oh, they, they must have just had this, I must win at all costs. Uh, I'll do anything to win. And no, it's, it's for almost all of the time that they've been doing their sport, whatever it is, they were nowhere near the best in the world. So if winning at all costs was the, the most important thing, they would have quit as a teenager. And so it's a love of the game. It's a wanting, it's a you challenging you and getting a little better and getting a little better. And there's a genetic component to it that you can't deny. And Sam is, you know, no matter how you look at is genetically designed to do that. And mm-hmm. I, I know that for a fact because sure. I know he's run a 10-10. Yeah. 
And that's, you could have done that your entire life. And I could have trained for that my entire life, which I did for a big part of my life. And I would never get anywhere near a 10-10. So there's a, there's a reality to it. We're all suited for some things and not suited for others. Right. So, so why be, you know, why hate phys ed class? Because you feel awkward and out of place. Let's, let's you worry about you. I'll worry about me. And it's, and it's about effort and it's about, seeing if you can learn something. And by the way, that's fun. The The other part of the soft skill equation for me is something you mentioned early on, and, and I've said on over and over on this podcast, we have had plenty examples of leadership, uh, management versus leader here in the last two months. Like lots of managers out there, very few leaders. And, and I'm beginning to think that this is another thing that should come out of this pandemic is learning teamwork, learning the, the the soft skills of leadership and things that that sport teaches better than any other pursuit. I think so. Well, there's a if you ask parents, as I have, as as for the for my own research purposes, frankly, for a blog that I was working on years ago, I've asked many athletes, some of whom were successful on an international level, some of whom were good enough to represent their country but never made it on an international level and the question the way i always phrased it was if you knew your kid was never going to be you know representing their country or winning a medal at some level would you still want them participating and the answer is always a a resounding yes and so why is that and it relates to leadership it relates to character it relates to the joy of Physical activity. I know that's that seems so far away from elite sport, mm-hmm. but but being successful in an elite sport is also tied to what makes you happy and still doing it when you're 60. You know, which is a lot, just the enjoyment of it and being active and being outdoors and uh, you know interacting with with people and uh, yeah, that's if we can just get back to that, which we are starting to do slowly. I hope that's my hope for this situation yeah. we're going through because <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say we've never had anything like this before, but that's been said so many thousand times. I'm going to cut myself off before I say that. No, but you know what's, but you know what is different about this go round though, Duff, is that we never had the push to do these things before we never had the social media with you know someone like yourself with i love a challenge or with some of the olympic athletes hey did you try this i, I talked to tommy wielden jr and they did this neat back you know can you get the the soccer ball in the backpack and stuff all of these things that you know are, are play are free play things and they're being there's kind of external you know help for free play that that's what i think is different about this time you know we we kind of just like you said before Get off the couch. Go outside. Now we're kind of educating people on free play, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, it's – it's and again, whether the it's – it's the bigger picture and the more important picture is wellness. When, when you're 60 and 70, are you still doing it? Do you still find it fun? Yeah. But it's the same drive that actually makes you successful in an athlete, so it doesn't matter what the motivation is. Mm-hmm. And it's – you know, when you say uh, – like some of the things that I've been sharing on social media have been what I have literally spent hours doing playing with one of one teammate I had in particular who, whose name is Kelly Forbes. Um, he was a skeleton athlete. He works for the San Antonio Spurs now, 
but we would play horse for hours. And he was uh, like, he played university level basketball. So, and he's one of those guys who was just absolutely obsessed. You know, we worked together at Lindsay Park. So I would walk in, I can't tell you the number of times I walked in and it would be just him in a gym as if he was in a training video, like standing there, uh, elbow at his side, um, you know, the, the straight line between the knee and the, sure. the shoulder and the, and the elbow and so on, and then follow through and then just, you know, sink it from a certain spot, go get the ball, go back to that spot, sink it, you know, never touch the rim. Like just like he was, like he was in a training video or something, right. just absolutely obsessed with the details. And what we, what we also did was spend a lot of time, um, doing, uh, playing horse, but it wouldn't be fair. Like if he got tired of me, he'd say, <laughs> okay, shoot from here, hit the backboard. It can't hit the rim. And then in five shots, I would be done. But so mostly what we did was a soccer, you know, throw it off that wall. It can bounce once. And then you've got to juggle it on your knees, like a soccer ball. And then alley oop it and in stuff like that, where we were sort of on an even playing field. Yeah. But Kelly is, it's funny, just a, a quick story. When mm. he started working for San Antonio, he had been there for a year, and he said to me, he caught, you know, on the phone we were talking once, and he said that he was worried about his credibility. He was he was coaching, you know, millionaire, multimillionaire athletes, and and he said, I'm not like you. At least you have an Olympic medal. I don't have anything. And I and I said, Kelly, think about what you did. You watched me on TV at the Salt Lake Olympics. And said, if you can do it, I can do it. And within a quadrennial, in a technically based sport, finished 11th out of world championships, which is the Olympic qualifier. Yeah. So, like, we, and, and if we didn't have Jeff Payne and Paul Bohm, he would have made an Olympic team inside of four years. And the only reason he does that is because as a kid, he skateboarded. He you know, the, the, the basketball stuff, the horse stuff we did is a combination of nine sports yeah. names. You know, he's, he lived in Hawaii and surfed every day for six months. There there's, you know, he, we've had these epic battles and ping pong. There's, there's no sport that you can name that he hasn't tried. And so you put him in a completely novel situation, like going down a skeleton track where it's, you know, three, four, five G's, you're more upside down than right side up. And he knows where he is. And he, he learns that faster than almost any other human. Maybe a gymnast would learn it faster, but almost anybody else. And that's, you know, what's more, and what, that's what I said to him in the phone call, which is what's more amazing that a power athlete joins a power sport, dedicates for many years, competes against other power athletes, and someone's got to win that. Or the person who watches it on TV who has not, no business being a power athlete who just shows up and in four years has met the Olympic standard in something he's literally never done before. Yeah. So it's like that he is the epitome of the this is fun. I'm going to be in the I got nothing to do. I'll be in the gym for the next four hours. Multi-sport athlete. So and what? now he's employed by the flagship professional sports. Well, exactly. Why, why don't why why doesn't that story resonate? Why, why don't, why doesn't that attract parents? Why doesn't, you know what I'm saying? Like it's kind of this, the start of this conversation, we're talking about, you know, you're a firefighter and we're talking about the other fighter fighters. You guys are all athletes. You were considered heroes, right? An Olympic athlete, you're a hero. My God, what you do every day, you're a freaking hero. 
I don't understand why we don't hear a story like that one about Kelly and go, oh, my God, like, that's fantastic. You know, that's how I want my kid to be. I don't get that. Yeah. Yeah. It should. <laughs> it's it's ironic because my um, we both worked at Lindsay Park together and my, I met my wife, Jen, because she worked at Lindsay Park also. And Jen used to be Kelly's uh, boss at one point. Okay. And and she would tell you that she loves him uh, like a brother. But she hated being his boss because he would rather be playing. Something. <laughs> but uh, but you, I think that's exactly right. But we all we always said, oh, Kelly will be famous someday because he's such a character. He's such a very sure. funny person. Yeah. And you're ex- and I never really thought about it. Like I'm I'm sort of from that blog I mentioned. I'm sort of a, assembling all these things and put it together and just sort of make a book format out of it so that of all the years I dedicated to a sport, I have no association with whatsoever. Now I don't want that to be thrown out the window. Mm -hmm. So, and there's a chapter on, you know, living, you know, it's a, it's a cliche. It's, it's Yoda's expression. There is no try do or do not. There is no try. Yeah. Right. That's the guy who lived that better than anyone else. And you look at, you know, we, admire the Michael Phelps and the Usain Bolts of the world. And they worked very, very hard. Absolutely. But they, you could not genetically engineer someone to be better suited to what they do than those two, you know, or Shaquille O'Neal for that matter. Okay. So almost every one of us don't end up in that race because the genetics, you know, make it Mm -hmm. obvious that that's, it's not going to happen when you're, at least a teenager, yeah, right? Yeah, and so Kelly Forbes is one of those guys. I've heard people say that, uh, you know, people who know what they're talking about say he, he could have been a world-class middle distance, you know, 800 or 1500 meter runner. He's not built to be a basketball player, but he's employed by the Spurs now. Mm-hmm. He's not, you know, he's not an explosive power athlete, so he has no business being remotely successful in skeleton. And what he did was incredible Yeah, because of the... You know, if there was some kind of a competition, not like a decathlon for people who had no pre-exposure to what they were about to do, he would be the world champion of that. One of the the recent podcasts I did with was with Eric Tehachuk, and and it'll take me a little while to get to where I'm going here, but I was lamenting Derek. I think one of the things culturally we've lost is the big thick Saturday newspaper. And you'd sit, you get your coffee, and you go through the newspaper. And part of it was you worked your way to the sports section. You didn't, you didn't jump ahead. You worked your way, but then you read everything, and and you read it all. So you knew what was going on in the university team. You knew what was going on in the hockey team. You knew what was going on with the baseball team. You knew we just had a fuller appreciation for the totality of sport. And I, I I'm listening to you going. You're talking about why world of sport when we were growing up, like right Sunday yeah. afternoons, like. They're going to do barrel rate jumping. Okay, that's fantastic. <laughs> exactly. That's right? exactly what I was going to say, because part of that ABC Wild World of Sports is the guy that was, well, I was going to say it was the agony of defeat, but it was the guy falling on the ski jump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy landing on the, the last barrel, skating barrel jumping, right? Right. And, and we're missing that. We're missing that. We're miss because in that case, a Kelly would be celebrated. In that, that's the environment that he'd be celebrated. In a thick Saturday newspaper, there'd be a story on him. But we don't, we're not in that world now. 
right? We're missing that. We're missing that. I think we're missing that. Yeah. You know what? I, um, I had a chance, uh, I guess it's two Decembers ago now, uh, to go down to San Antonio to visit Kelly. Hmm. And I'm so, <laughs> it sounds funny to say, but I'm so proud of the San Antonio Spurs to appreciate what I see in my best buddy. Right. And, uh, you know, he, his shot has always been unbelievable. And so what the spur, and I was able to sit in on a, a pregame, like a closed to mm. the media practice mm. as his guest. And it was awesome. And they do a, a bit of, um, specific preparation they were playing the suns that night so they did some training that was related specifically to what the suns brought to the table yeah and then they do a kind of a shoot around competition so you got two athletes and a coach at every hoop and they have this big double gymnasium with extra hoops facility and so kelly was one of the coaches and he had two players with them and you do the coach sits under the hoop typically and you fire to the one player who sets up the other player and you do three pointers and you do them in the corner and then you do the 20 foot mid range jumper and you work around, you end to, you end up with uh, foul shots. And in the foul shots, the coaches take a turn because you want to, you want to ice the shooter a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so Kelly was shooting and I was like, okay, this is the only time where he's going head to head with NBA players. And if you've ever seen, yeah, I'm talking about Shaq three times now. But if you've ever seen Shaq do a foul shot, oh. you know that there's no, uh, there's not a stat. You know, no. NBA no. players are professional basketball players. But if there's one thing that there's inconsistency with, sure. or a guy from Calgary can com <laughs> be competitive with an NBA guy, sometimes it's the foul shot. And, and you know, most of them are very good. And it was one of their guards who was he was sort of shooting against. And I'm watching him, and I'm watching him. And I know, and in my mind. Uh, it's in the context of he we had this conversation once that he doesn't feel like he has the credibility as a non professional basketball player. Sure. And I'm like, OK, come on, Kelly, I've seen you do I've seen you do 100 in a row. So I know you can you can win this. And he didn't miss one during the whole practice. And so or, or this, you know, which maybe 10 minutes of foul shots. And afterwards, I was all excited. I said, you beat him. You beat him. That was awesome. And he was like, I actually didn't I didn't win today because. I get one point if I get it in, uh, but I don't get two points unless it, unless I sink it without it touching the rim. So uh, two of mine touched the rim today, so I didn't actually win. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, God love him. Th there's a handicap system. Yep. Make it more fair for the NBA players to compete against my buddy <laughs> in free throws. So that's like to me, it does, I'm not sure it gets much better than that, Rob. I got to ask, um, what did you glean from just being in the presence of Greg Popovich? Um, he was he was very cranky. <laughs> no, he was not a he was not a happy man uh, for the most part. Um, I, I didn't, you didn't see him a lot, and okay. I never. There were a number of people, a number of the coaches that I met and sat with, and and uh, enjoyed a conversation with, and he wasn't one of them. He came out of an office. He gave them, you know, the instructions. He had one of his assistant coaches running them through different things. Yeah. And then he was sort of gone. So I never – I was looking forward to meeting him because I know that uh, he's been – like Steve Curry's been very outspoken about politics, let's yep. say. And yep. uh, um, He doesn't look like he's defined by basketball, right? Yes, yes. And he knows who his 
players are and yeah. who his audience is yeah. at, at very least. And I don't want to I don't want to imply by saying that that that's not who he is at all. I know that's not what I'm saying. Uh, so I find him to be an interesting uh, character, but I didn't really get a chance to meet him, frankly. I met a number of the players. It, it, sure. was, it was really enjoyable. Um, I you know, I love. The, the, I love the word. I'm sitting here yelling at you about stuff. But uh, what I love ab about the Duff Gibson story is everything. What I don't know about the Duff Gibson story is how did you become an advocate for this? Like, I know about Dark Horse Athletic. I know what you stand for. But what was the turning point or what was the impetus to become an advocate for this? Well, two two parts. I would say not not giving any greater weight to one or the other, but uh, chronologically, when I was a coach, uh, occasionally, because I was a national team coach, I wouldn't coach someone at all until they showed up on the national team. So for the first time, I would coach a 30-something-year-old. Okay, That wasn't unusual. Now, there were people who went the other direction also. But uh, a 30-year-old who is their own worst enemy who mentally can't get out of their own way. Mm -hmm. My experience is that's not something that you can change when they're 30. And so how do you have the greatest good? Um, in some of the Asian countries in speed skating, we used to see come through the oval, the master head coach coached the kids because that's where you had the greatest impact, the mm -hmm. mindset, the, the work ethic, the love of the game. So that was that was part of it. I thought, okay, we gotta this the system is broken. We gotta we gotta work with young people. Um, and part two, and I would say this this had the, a larger impact was when my uh, youngest son Tay was eight. He and he never made this past year. He made the top level of community ho hockey. He had never made the top level in his life. He had made level two when he was in the second year of the two year. Yeah. Yeah. But he never, like there's a whole level of crazy above anything that we ever saw. But even at level two, there was a situation where we are driving home after a game and he said, man, coach takes this way too seriously. And I, I thought, what is it? What is it about human psychology that makes a grown man blind to something that's obvious to an eight-year-old. And I and what's more, I thought, I, I have just retired from coaching after attending the Sochi Olympics, and I've just watched uh, a, a semi-consistent season of behavior that we literally would not have tolerated at the Olympic level. So why does it happen with eight-year-olds? Right. At level two. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's it's... We would never tolerate it at the Olympic level because it's so clearly counterintuitive to what you're trying to go for at elite level sport. So, you know, let alone with, for kids where it's completely irrelevant if they don't want to come back. Hmm. You know, I, I, I think of it in I just try and phrase it and I certainly think of it in the simplest possible terms. Talent is irrelevant if they don't want to play. How does Work that, ethic, all that is irrelevant yeah. if they don't want to be there. But how does that become a call to action, Duff? You, you know what I mean? Like, you could have done the other thing, which is go to the office and complain to your buddies. That That's that's what most of us do, right? <laughs> you know? 
implying that I didn't also do that. <laughs> no, but clearly there's a call to action for you at some point, right? Yes. Yes, and it's it's uh you have may, you may have asked me this question yourself actually uh, about making a difference. And and for the longest time and and to this day I can, my answer is the same. I have no idea if I've converted a single person or I'm just you know, uh, someone where people who agree with me can mm-hmm. reach out and connect. Ah, but I have the answer to that question. <laughs> Do you have a... I have that answer. I can answer your question for you. Yeah, you have made a difference. Because I interviewed her. And that's exactly. and that's Grace Defoe. Oh, oh, oh. And that's that Grace Defoe. <laughs> that's the answer to your question. Have you made it? Yes, you've made one. For sure. I mean, one we can guarantee for sure. But that's all that matters, right? Hmm. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. I hope I hope I've made No, you know you have. You know I know what you're saying and I get that that false humility, whatever you want to call. It. I get that part, but no you have. I know you have. I mean, you're the leader of a movement, dude. Like well, I really believe that. You know I, when I interviewed you was 2015. And later that week, if you remember, was the first time ever that hometown hockey not hometown hockey. Yeah, hometown hockey came to Calgary at the Olympic Plaza. And I talked to Ron McLean. And when I went back to talk to Ron McLean, Ron said, oh, hey, Rob. And I'm like, I've never I met him twice, right? And he goes, hey, Rob. Like, he yeah. sees me every day. He goes, in photographic memory. And he goes, I can't begin to tell you how much I enjoyed your Duff Gibson interview this week. Oh, really? Yes. Because you were on and we were talking about this. And I asked you that question about have you made a difference? Because you are the, to me, I and again, I'm pumping your tires, dude, but this is what you do, right? And I like I think the world, I think we need more Duff Gibsons, and that's why I'm, I keep coming back to that call to action. I wonder how many people go, oh, we got to make a change. Ah, it's too hard, <clears throat> right? It's too hard. Yeah, I don't know. You don't it, think it, so? Well, you know what? My, my game plan is get in front of as many kids as possible. Right. And slowly, you know, I feel like, you know, the I love a challenge challenges. Yeah. They're designed. There's a lot of thought that goes into those. There's, they're safe. They involve equipment that the average kid has. Yep. Yes. Okay. So that's just a marketing, you know, a participation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's levels so that you challenge you. And it doesn't matter who's beside you or who's number one. It's, it's trying to get, is trying to inspire a love of the game. Yeah. And it's designed for a very specific reason relating to why kids don't want to play sports or why kids don't enjoy physical education. And, and you know, you're, I'm sure that you're at this point uh, long since having been at this point in your life that your interest in, making a million dollars or your goals, your professional goals are to make a difference. That's all it that matters, right? It does. Yeah. I'm not having said that in case anyone is listening. I'm certainly not opposed to earning a million dollars. No, I would if thrust upon me, I would take it Duff. Absolutely. But yeah. no, no, but I know exactly. What, no, it's a being service. Now to me that the, the journey right now in my life is to, to be of service. My being of service is different than your being of service. 
your being of service is what you're doing. The you know dark horse, coaching, all of that stuff. The the, the I love a challenge. That that to me is the purpose, right? Well, it's. I appreciate what you're saying very much, Rob. And and my I have the same compliment right back to you, which is. Um, you're doing a program like this. I have as much time as you want and tell me when you want to do it because what coming, you know, my assessment of talk radio, the world that you came from, mm. um, has an over infatuation with professional sport to the detriment of everything else. Right. And you're, um, like the Claire Hughes and the Becky Scott's and the, et cetera, name 19 amateur athletes you have an appreciation for the big picture and why we do all this in the first place. Yeah. And the rea- and the reality is that professional sports and amateur sport are not the same thing. And there there are the Michael Phelps uh, you know we mentioned the the millionaires mm-hmm. before and absolutely and there there you could argue that if you earn several million dollars from sponsors going to an Olympics that that is closer to the NBA than what I ever did or what, right. you know, a badminton player ever did where, right. where the one time you're going to be on television, good or bad, sick or not, will be the Olympics. And then it's, and then that's it for four years. So no, no one in my world of amateur sport did it to be famous or did it to be rich. And if, if you did it, you're a fool. <laughs> no, you're right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely, and and I would say this, knowing what I know, having gone through what I've gone through, you're right. I mean, the conversation I just referenced that that Ron McLean liked was probably ten to twelve minutes because that's what I was limited to. That's why I like this format. Euro, well, I got lots of time. We can go as long as we want. But your point about pro and amateur sports are really important because both have value. Because I'm miss, I I'm missing tuning into a hockey game tonight. I'd love to tune in, you know. And I know football's around the corner. That's great. Love it. It's the distraction and everything. What I'm more interested in is we talk about health care. What would we save? What would we do to our economy in 20 or 30 years if we put more structured physical athletic programming into our schools? You know, instead of it being the thing that gets cut all the time, what if we emphasized it? What we, we don't have a government and it's or we don't have a political party worth its soul that would run on a program that will benefit us in 30 or 40 years. But don't you think that's kind of the reality? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Sport as preventive health care. Right. Um, so what comes to mind is Finland. You, you see the, the YouTube videos about how there's no organized school in Finland until age seven. And Finland is mentioned specifically because they're number one or two typically on standardized, internationally standardized testing test scores. So what has happened in academics or or schooling, for lack of a better term, uh, is that um, younger and younger, we try and make people who aren't ready to sit still learn to read. And I remember my mom saying, yeah, you know, I go to kindergarten. And grade one, and my mom would say, how was school today? And I'd, I'd roll my eyes and say, just more cut and paste, more cut and paste. And she used to laugh at that. Because we, we weren't, were, you know, we were being introduced to ABCs. We weren't reading. There was no one, you know, but the same thing that happens to parents whose seven-year-old can handle a, a puck through pylons is 
is the chest is puffing out in the, in the same way with the parent whose kid can read by age seven. Yep. And it doesn't, you know, I think that, uh, uh, what's his name? David Epstein could come up with a chart to show you that the kid who's reading at seven, that doesn't mean that they're bound to be, you know, writing programs for NASA by the time they're 18. It doesn't work that way. Right. It's, it's, you can make someone fantastic by age 10. We know, we know what the formula is for that. And those are the kids who don't want to play anymore and who don't enjoy it. And who certainly like that to me, the, the, the one study that is the most shocking is the earlier you specialize, the more likely you are to quit and then never do your sport again, thereby defeating the purpose of why we have youth sport in the first place. Right. You know, why, how do we uh, – I, I read a, a tweet by Neil deGrasse Tyson mm-hmm. the other day, and he said and, – and this is – this won't be word for word, but it's close. It's like, tell me I'm wrong. Every disaster movie begins with a politician ignoring a scientist. Yeah, <laughs> And that's kind of, I mean, I think he was referring to climate change, but surely we, we know whether it makes sense to be teaching five and six-year-olds how to read when there's another, there, there's got to be data on this. But we're... I mean, there's surely data on, you know, young soccer and hockey players who are unbelievable by age 10 who are injured and don't care to ever play those sports again. Oh, dude, dude, like we are slaves to structure. If it's the way we've done it, then that's the way we have to do it. And it's hilarious to me that, not hilarious in the funny way, you're bringing up an example of Finland. I'll give you an, up, an example of Finland. I was at a coaching conference yeah. two years ago yeah. where, you know, they just won a world junior gold. So they're a bunch, in front of a bunch of ho- hockey coaches, and they're, somebody asked them about goaltending. Oh, I'll tell you about goaltending. There's only one goalie up until the age of 14. If a team has two goalies and the other one's not starting, he's skating as a forward or a defenseman. He's not sitting on the bench. Right. And it's like, thank you. Why yeah. on why do I go to Winsport and see a, an Adam team with a, a freaking nine year old sitting on a bench? Yeah. But we're but we're I can tell sl- you why you, you don't do that. Oh, yeah. We, we want to play. Right. That's not fun. No. You know, like, like you you have these studies and, and I've sort of I've made a habit of it every time I'm in front of like a kid's hockey team or, a, you know, a colleague of mine will say, can you talk to the kid's hockey i say okay here's your choice you're going to ride the bench on the team that wins it all mm-hmm. or you're going to be a key player on the team that you know probably loses a few more than they win what's your choice i've yet to have a kid who says they'd rather sit on the bench and watch other people win the game right you know people i, I think of you know to use basketball as an, as an example kids don't or my generation at least uh, to use Michael Jordan as an example, right. my generation didn't dream of being on the bench watching Michael Jordan sink the bucket. You dreamt that you were Michael Jordan. That's right. That's right. So that is such a fundamental basic. And, and in the end, you know why? And still, we're not listening to that. No. Finland the World Juniors that year. And it's not, it's not just that, what's their national population? Seven million? Seven something? million people, yeah. And Absolutely. with fewer hockey rinks per capita than Canada. So in other words, no business competing with Canada. Right. And they win the world juniors and, and gave Canada at the, at, at Sochi, for example, gave Canada the best game, um, which, which I think 
that, that Canadian men's gold medal team, that was the best hockey team. That, that would, absolutely in was. In my mind. Absolutely. In my was. non-hockey mind, that yep. was the best team ever. And it was a 2-1 game, if I remember correctly, yep. against Finland. Yeah. You know, but we won't, we don't want to learn from, because we're Canada, I guess. And that's what bothers me. We're, we're, we're slaves to our own structures, right? And, and there's so many examples, but again, I love being patriotic. I love yeah. pounding my chest and saying we're Canada, but we can learn from people. It's okay. Learning's okay, right? Oh, yeah. I'm about an hour late on this one. By the way, Duff Gibson's our guest here on the Original Six Feet uh, Conversation podcast. Sport Calgary members have access to resources such as marketing on social media, blog entries, features, and placement on the events listing. Become a member. It's easy and free. www.sportcalgary.ca slash members. Um, I got to ask. So wrestling, what else when you were growing up? Name one. This is when I'm meeting kids for the first time, I give three people a chance to guess a sport I've never done before. Okay. And there are, there are a few correct answers to this one. Boxing? <clears throat> and the, the only reason I take that is because you were wrestling, and I just wondered, well, I'm already in a combat sport. <clears throat> I, did, I did judo and wrestling, so... okay. Only two combat sports. Only so, two combat yeah. sports. Okay. You're right. Boxing. You're correct. You're correct. No one's guessed that one before. That's very good. Um, but I did box growing up. Did you? Briefly. Yeah. And I'll tell you right now. And About a round? Oh, well, I'll never forget it. It was immediately after the 84 Olympics. Uh, Willie DeWitt. Yep. Sean O'Sullivan. I got a box. So I joined a boxing club. And I was about to enter a world of hurt that I was not prepared for. But that's okay. My six months in boxing taught me so much, right? Like, it, it's a mano a mano. It's you against an opponent. And you got to learn how to take a punch and everything like that. Uh, again, I've done a lot of things. And that was probably the shortest one, but probably had the biggest impact on me, right? Yeah. You know? Okay. Um, cricket. Or is that too... Tried it a couple of you times. You did try it. Okay, so I thought I'd go off the board with something. All Sport One Day gave me access to a couple of ones that okay. slipped through the cracks when I was a kid. Okay, so in terms of traditional North American sports, are there answers? Um, figure skating is one. Okay. Um, someone, a kid once said... Uh, Five day eventing, and I and I said yes. That equestrian, athlon. <laughs> that's another. That's another correct. Okay, all but, right. Uh, I always say they're having watched as a ten year old or a kid about to turn ten, watching the Montreal Olympics. It was from that moment forward. It was what is it going to take? Yeah. I don't care what sport it is. Uh, I need to try it uh, because the Olympics is the goal, not a particular sport. So in high school, it was wrestling. And then in university, it was rowing. I had an uncle who went to the 84 Olympics in rowing. Um, then I moved to Calgary right after the 88 Olympics, and that was speed skating and then bobsleigh and skeleton. So, so what is the attraction for skaters to go to sliding sports? Because I mentioned Grace Defoe before, figure skater got herself into skeleton. So now I'm starting to see this connection between skaters and and uh, sliding. I don't know. I can think of a I can think of a couple figure skaters who became speed skaters. Okay. But it's for skeleton. There's no one who did nothing and then tried skeleton. 
because you can't do it until you're 16. Right. Right. So there's no there's no skeleton. There's no one who isn't a multi-sport athlete in skeleton. That makes same, sense. As, same as bobsleigh in that in that regard. So when did you, when did you what age did you get into skeleton then? At the ripe old age of 33. Ugh, I love this story. This is these are the stories I live for. These are the stories we've got to tell. So I, you you I must would be a trivia question because I graduated university. I must be the only person on the planet who can say this. I graduated university never having heard of the sport I would later become. You never heard of it? Champion in. You never heard of it? It existed. And there was a yeah, World Cup yeah. circuit and all this stuff. Yeah, but yeah. I grew up in Ontario and I, you know, bobsledder, you know, I watched them on TV. Sure. But but I learned about, I learned this earlier today. You were too old to get into, to luge, right? Like if. It, I don't know. Okay. I never had any interest or because that's what Grace told me. I said, "Why? Why did you choose to go down head first as opposed to feet first? And she said, "Oh, I was too old. I had to go skeleton." So no age restrictions. I'm I'm as a coach, I was never I never had any uh, age bias against anyone because I was older <laughs> than any of the questioned individuals. So what got what what tipped you over to skeleton? Why did you end up there? Well, it was, it was just easier than bobsledding in the sense that um, you're like a cliche we said in the sliding sports was a fast run was one third push, one third drive, one third equipment. So in bobsled, you could be, you know, Pierre Luders was the man mm -hmm. at the time and you could have, and I'm certainly not suggesting that I was, but you could have been a better driver and a faster pusher than Pierre and still never compete against him because you wouldn't have nearly the same equipment or the brakeman on the team with you. Right. So right. there was to a certain extent, a waiting of your turn to compete in, in bobsleigh. And I, it's interesting. So in, I switched to skeleton and you had Ryan Davenport, who was a two time world champion, whose father built dragsters and had CNC machines and, and built his own sleds sure. living in Calgary. So for $6,000, I had what I knew the best sliders in the world were competing against. And so what I craved was an opportunity to know if I did something well, if something went well, it was because of what I did. If something went poorly, it was because of what I did. And so the learning curve would be much faster. So I valued that in skeleton and it wasn't you know pierre's sled at the time was like ninety thousand dollars or something and that's you know that's the the early 90s yeah yeah so multiply that out to where it is now like i know someone who literally mortgaged their house to compete in in bobsleigh mm -hmm. so uh i just got frustrated with the politics and sort of waiting your turn and and uh do you remember i don't know if you'll remember this name evo ferriani yeah Sure. Sure. He's the he was the head coach for uh, it was right when bobsleigh and skeleton became uh, amalgamated like they, the circuits yep. uh, joined combined. And Evo is still the president of the FIBT now, but he was the Canadian head coach for a while. And after I can't remember if it was after the Olympics or after I had won the world championships in 04, Evo confided in me that when I first made 
the national skeleton team, he had to argue on my behalf because some of the bobsled coaches didn't think I had what it, what it took. And he was bringing that up to me at the time because, you know, it was sort of funny in hindsight and you prove that you deserve to be there, but it was interesting that, you know, and that was my, that was my impression in bobsled. I thought I, I felt as though they didn't believe in my potential or something. And so I said enough of this. And I switched to skeleton and where I could control everything myself. And in, in hindsight, Evo said, yeah, you were, you were right. They, there was a lack of confidence and, yeah. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. I wanted, were you recruited or did you push your way on to the skeleton team? Skeleton, uh, skeleton is, you see, with bobsledding, there was one year in bobsledding where I thought, oh, I'm waiting my turn. If I'm just a brakeman, yep. it's the fairest thing in the world. You just go up to the level that you, mm-hmm. you know, the top drivers would be happy to have you if you're good enough. So the one year I, um, started with bobsledding. I, I made the national team on Canada three. So I wasn't on the top two sleds, but I was on the national team and that was great. And I got in two accidents, one the year before, but one with the national team where everybody in the sled went to the hospital ex- except me. And that happened twice. And I was, uh, until that first crash, I was ignorantly happy going down. And then from that point on, I thought to myself, "Okay, I need to be I need to be in control of this." <laughs> and so, and so, I, as a driver, you almost have to wait your turn so that you can compete. And so, I switched to skeleton. And I'm sorry, Rob, I forgot the <laughs> what the original question. Well, were was. you recruited, or did you? I mean, was it a, a decision you made? I'm going to go over there, and you here I am, or? Yeah, it yeah. was just I got fed up with the politics, yeah, quite okay. frankly. Yeah, and uh, I, I went to skeleton and. And I tell this to people because it speaks to the effect that we have on other people. Um, but when I said, okay, enough of this, uh, it was right after the IOC had decided that Skeleton would go back in the Olympic program for 02. So we're, we're looking at 99, fall of 99, I think is what okay. it, when it was. Um, and I passed, a, I was walking, just training at, at COP and I was walking through a parking lot and I passed a guy named Steve Ovis and Steve is a, he was the president of the Provincial Skeleton Association at the time and had been a national team slider himself. And he said something along the lines of, and like if this isn't word for word, it's close. He said, Duff, I heard you're switching to skeleton. I think that's a fantastic idea. You're going to do awesome. You already know the tracks and the concepts. You just need to learn how to steer a different sled. And uh, you're going to make national team. You're going to do awesome uh, with your speed and your strength. You're going to do fantastic. As a matter of fact, to qualify for the Olympics, all you need is a top 12 of the world championships, which are on your home track in Calgary next year. You're going to go to the Olympics. And then he walked away. And in my mind, thinking back on it, I just sat there with my mouth open because it was so dramatically different, a mindset or someone, you know, imagine the thought that someone would believe in you and think you had potential and just told you, right. you know, as opposed to, you know, being your competitor and would would cut you down or or undercut your your successes in in some way. So if my math is correct, Duff, you did not even have a full quadrennial in the sport before '02, right? No, but but um, it was not a different. Well, it's like the best in the world were always really really good. Yeah. 
Um, in Canada, our best, like Ryan Davenport, is still like athletically wasn't fantastic, but skill wise has still not been matched, in my opinion. Still has the fastest speeds in Calgary. Had a, a track record in Le Plan, France, which is uh, where the 92 uh, Olympics were. Mm-hmm. And that track record was eventually broken by one of the Dukers brothers, but the Dukers, uh, I assume it was uh, Martins, who was world champion at the time, would have been six-tenths, seven-tenths of a second ahead of him based on the start. And he beat it, beat the track record by a tenth of a second at the bottom. So Ryan is just destroying people in terms of the actual technique of it. I mean, he was built, you know, tiny uh, frontal surface area profile, like just yep. built to do it. Not the athlete, but the technical part. Like it's still unknown, in my opinion, there's still no one like him ever. And so you had that as a as a resource but in canada in general that's where i started to go with this in canada in general it wasn't deep you had jeff Payne on that team and the first year i tried it he won a i think he won a silver medal at the world championships which are in fairness were in calgary but he was a world cup medalist so um there were great people around but there was no depth right. to it okay so okay. in a relatively short period um, i was able to get the last like right away you know and it, I was able to get the last spot on the Canadian team, but um, I wasn't starting from scratch. Athletically, I was one of the better guys because, you know, for the eight years I did bobsledding, I was training to do exactly the same thing. So I was definitely not starting from scratch. How do you describe that physically? Because you're going down the track, you, you know, but now, and, and, you know, you heard the conversation I had with Chris Cedarstrand, and, you know, he goes from being a WHL player to being a sledge player. And the biggest thing is your perspective. Like, you're used to being up here. Now you're down here, so to speak. How would you describe the physical difference of, of going down the hill on a bobsleigh as opposed to a skeleton? Well, it's, it's funny because I've, you know, I've been asked, I'm sure, a hundred times if I'm crazy for doing that sport. <clears throat> But it's much, it's much better on your body. It's much uh, more comfortable. I mean, your your yeah. spine is lying flat. It's tough on your neck. Your neck has to support your head, and so um, not from making contact with the ice. I mean, you have a chin guard, and sometimes under heavy G's, your chin guard will scrape a bunk uh, across the ice. But there have been. You know, under G and the vibration, and so the the shaking of the head, we've had concussion-related issues. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be tied to neck strength. So if you have uh, a strong neck, <clears throat> and you put in a few years to get you know to get dialed on the steering, it's really not physically demanding. And and most skeleton athletes would tell you that they injured themselves more often training for a skeleton, you know, in the weight room or sprinting or something much more often than they ever would by doing the sport as opposed to bobsledding. Like, you know, like especially the, the old guys who used to go down to Lake Placid and it was like, it wouldn't, it's not that far off from someone putting a two by four on your hip and then someone else hitting the two by four with the sledgehammer. It would essentially be, you know, that's not over-dramatizing it. Right. And, and, and you have the old photographs to, you know, of someone's hip to, to prove it. Um, yeah, being on a skeleton is, is considered crazier, but it's not as physically painful. How, how dramatically different 
was Duff Gibson, the skeleton athlete in 2002 in Salt Lake City as opposed to Duff Gibson in 2006 in Turin. If I was watching video, how much difference would I notice in you? I don't I don't think you'd notice too much okay. aesthetically. Um, I got slightly more aerodynamic. I mean, coming from bobsledding, I, I was a comfortable 220, you know, 225 maybe. And then by the time Torino hit, you know, I'm in Salt Lake, I might've been 215 or 210. And by the time Torino hit 205 and most of that was, I mean, we got tested on squat and bench press and clean. So, but I never did upper body weights, but you train your nervous system. So my bench press score would be about the same as it was, but I, I would never have built any muscle. I, w I was trying to be smaller at the front to be more sure. like an arrow, yeah. frankly. Um, but I don't, I don't honestly know that you would, you, you would see a lot of difference. The, the tracks over that period of time became dramatically different. And the, uh, Segulda and Altenburg, in my opinion, are the two scariest, most dangerous tracks in the world. Um, to the point where when I first went to Altenburg, which is one of the German tracks, three people were taking away in a, in a, in an ambulance before it was my turn to go. Ooh. And after this, after the second one, it was like, I would prefer not to be standing here with all the other vultures watching to see who gets smashed. Yeah. But it's, you know, they, you can groom in some cases they, they redo the concrete, like they will cut it out a little bit and, and smooth it out a little bit. Um, but Altenburg, there were, you used to see people literally flying out of corners straight enough. I mean, they knew what they were doing enough so that they would la also land in the track and no one seriously got, no one got killed. But they used to be crazy and they groomed them and potentially re-cemented them so that they became, the times just got faster and faster and faster mm -hmm. because you didn't go to the roof and disappear and at the bottom and to the roof and up and down. It just they groomed it so you could go flatter and flatter and it became more of a track meet. Now, Alt Altenburg would never be a track meet. A track meet, Calgary has been accused of uh, being a track meet, meaning if you're first to the first couple corners, you have a good chance yeah. of winning the whole thing. Um, Torino was the opposite of a track meet. Uh, Altenburg was, and Segulda still, uh, the, the opposite of a track meet. And if you're not paying very close attention you know, people say, were you ever scared doing it? And that, and I, and I, the way I phrase it is I wasn't scared, but the course had my complete and undivided attention in those, in those locations. But that was the biggest, that was the biggest change, I think. What, what do you remember from 14 years ago? The, the racing, the races, the runs, the, the, the win, what do you, what, what's your Olympic memory or what's your memory of that day? Is it crystal clear? I would say aspects of it are crystal clear. Um, my wife being there, my wife being inconsolable <laughs> before, you know, like, like, uh, my way of dealing with the stress was trying to get my wife to settle down. Um, <laughs> being, uh, Greg Uches, do you know, Greg? No. Uh, physio, uh, 
not physiotherapist. He's a sport chiropractor. He was part of the medical team. He's been on the medical team for a number of different uh, Winter Olympics, at mm-hmm. least. And he still talks about Jeff and I, who were sitting in first and second uh, between runs and the telling the corniest jokes. And you would never have guessed, you know, we're in just the perfect frame of mind. Yeah. yeah. Right. And any kind of nerves. My wife just sitting waiting. There's no outlet for the nerves for us about to compete. There's an outlet. For the, for the nerves and it's stretching and it's visualizing and it's everything else. But the, the, it's what I have tried on many occasions to teach other athletes. And that is a completely relaxed and prepared physical body, but relaxed because in skeleton, your body is a shock absorber and that makes you go faster. So any kind of muscular tension literally slows you down regardless of how well you drive and so complete relaxed uh you know no muscular tension at all but but absolute focus and mental awareness and and focus i don't know those are those are cliches yeah being on some kind of uh you know adh what i imagine an adhd medication would do so you are completely focused on one thing and the body there's no muscular tension in the body it's 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 difficult for me to explain no no it's what i wanted it's the answer i want because and and again part of the journey of this podcast is you talk to champions and and i'm not sure if you're a lay person or you just think oh well it'd be great to win an olympic championship it'd be great to break that tape and raise your arms and i've won and what is more evident than ever is it's the journey the champ that that the, the medal's a culmination, right? It's all of those things that you did, all of those experiences you had to get you there. I just wondered what you remember of that day, like you know the fact that, yeah. and it's funny because I I was asking great, I asked a lot of the athletes, especially the individual athletes, if if I can talk to you, am I able to talk to you on game day? I don't have to ask you that question. You just told me you were consoling your wife, right? Like that's a that's an irrelevant question. Clearly, I can talk to you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, well, it's, I, I listened to you ask that of Nikki out Yeah. Yeah. Who, who gives, who works for dark horse and gives us a very good. Why doesn't that surprise me? Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We're, we're <laughs> there. There is no shortage of amateur athletes who completely understand the point yep. in that, in that regard. Yep. Um, there are moments where I, I would like to be in my own place uh, leading right up to it. You know, a few minutes before I need to be in my own headspace because there's something very, very specific I need to mm-hmm. try and accomplish. But uh, yeah, there's, there's no, it's, it's interesting, but I'm sure that's no different from any other sport. There's, there's no room for muscular tension. If I'm tight, if my hamstrings are tight, that impedes the ability of my hip flexors to drive my knee to run the fastest that I possibly can. Right. So almost all of my preparation is getting rid of muscular tension. Which is, Blake Mahan talked about that as a football player, which was a problem for him because he got too tense before he got on the field. He got himself too worked up. He was too fired up. He just got to a point where now we're supposed to go out there. I can't do anything. I'm too over the top, right? You know, it's... It's, which I, is, that's what I see when I watch football. 
you know, like there's this huge play and someone gets sacked and people are high-fiving yeah. and doing some kind of a Viking pose or something. And I'm thinking, as an old man, I look at that and I think, <laughs> oh, man, save your energy. <laughs> yeah. You got, you got yeah. 90 more plays. <laughs> Harder to compete in skeleton or coach skeleton? Uh, emotionally, well, because Kelly, you know, I've, I talked about Kelly. Yep. Kelly was my teammate. Yep. Well, he injured him. He injured his back and was making a, a comeback and so on. And he was in second place uh, in a race that I was coaching. And I have never been that nervous in my life and had nothing that you could do about it except fake that you weren't <laughs> fake that you weren't losing it when you talked to him and, and you know to try and yeah, yeah. Him to be relaxed. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it's it, it's the same. But, between my wife and I, mm-hmm. no outlet for her as the coach, no outlet. You just watch it and it, you're either happy or not happy when it, when it's done, you know? Yeah. I, I should have run. I should have done wind sprints myself or something to, as a coach to help deal with that. But that's, yeah, as a, I, in my mind, I, yeah. And, and it's funny because after, after Kelly retired, I retired in, in after 06 and within a few years, like before 2010, Kelly had reti- his back injury had sort of meant that he wasn't there. And so he and I coached together yeah. on the national team until Sochi and inclu- up into and including Sochi. And uh, one of my favorite uh, photographs of all my, I, I would say my favorite photograph or favorite memory from, from Kochi uh, from coaching was in St. Moritz when um, uh, Sarah Reed was in fourth behind two-time world champion Elizabeth, oh, I can't remember her last name, uh, won, won the last two Olympics. And I'm, anyone who's a skeleton athlete is laughing at me <laughs> on the radio right now. Uh, British two-time yeah. Olympic champion um, who was in third. Sarah was in fourth. Sarah goes down, has this absolute cracker of a run and then it's elizabeth is next and she and and kelly and i celebrated as loud as we could after sarah's run because we wanted the british team to know that the pressure was on based on what sarah had done Hmm. and it, it you know and she on the fourth fourth and final run at the world championships and for knowing full well that, you know, and Sochi, Sochi was a, a gong show. It was just blatant garbage politics cheating. Yeah. You know, and, and it, exactly what you saw happen with the Luge team happened with, didn't seem to happen on the men's race, but happened very obviously on the women's race. And and that prevented Sarah from, uh, and Melissa Hollingsworth, who, who both of whom had a rank of two on one of the runs on the second day. But knowing that you only get in that position once, potentially you know if you're most people never get in that position <laughs> let's be clear about that that's right we're in that position it's it's very likely a once in a lifetime and to have her steal a bronze in that position was was the ultimate highlight i have two i have two highlights but that's that's one of them and then just the the picture is because sarah's at the finish line and kelly and i and nathan our other uh coach uh we were at the starting line and the three of us sort of hugging and celebrating that would be one of my two all-time favorite moments 
you think you just kind of let the cat out of the bag, but how much shenanigans go on in, in Skeleton? Is there a lot of, you know, uh, is there people with black hats? Are there villains in Skeleton? Yes, un- unfortunately, unfortunately there are. Yeah. And uh, in Sochi, you saw what happened with the Luge team. Yep. Um, in all of our training runs, one Scott McBride, who's a former Team Canada guy, was our is our technical guy in the in the coaching sca- staff. And his job every day before training was to take the laser uh, thermometer and walk up and get a temperature for every corner as he walks to the top of the track. And every day in every corner, it was minus 10 degrees, literally plus or minus a half a degree every single training day. Um, and then, you know, for the training week, for the official training before the Olympics themselves, <clears throat> same thing on the first day of the women's race. And you have a park for May, which means closed park. At this time period, the sleds need to be in the park for May and no one's allowed to touch them. And within 15 minutes of that cutoff point where you can't even adjust the rock on your sled anymore, let alone change runners, which is what you really need to do, the temperature had gone from minus 10 to minus 3, something like that. Whoa. Which, which doesn't happen unless there's someone in the cooling plant changing that. And I can... You know, I could give you an—I could literally give you an hour lecture with <laughs> diagrams yeah. as to why that works for the the coach, like the coach of the of the Russian team is a guy named Willie Schneider, and he coached the Canadian team previously. And his design of a runner, why the 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 typically the, the equipment that the Canadian team used that was disastrous, but for the equipment that he was using, it didn't have that much of an effect, and so. That took them right out of the running on the first day. And on the second day, that didn't happen. On the second day, Sarah had one of her, I think her ranks were four and two. And Melissa, I don't remember, but one of Melissa's ranks were two. And so that's, I don't know if, I don't know if this is the kind of podcast where you can say that's complete bullshit or not. It is actually. Yeah, you just did. Yep. Okay. Well, that was, that was complete nonsense. And you, you know, you watch the, um, what was the. Icarus. uh, Icarus, exactly. Yep. Yeah, I knew it. it's 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 right out of that playbook, isn't it? It is. It it is. I mean, you, it takes a certain um, amount of I don't know what. Um, watching a world where we reward bad behavior, where you think, okay, I'm actually going to construct a hole in the wall. I, that's so what I was just supply, thinking, right? So I could supply urine, and in that movie, they mention by name a couple of skeleton athletes and, and it's, it's sad. It's sad because if you <laughs> at one point and you know, the FIBT and the IOC flip flopped a little on that. Yep. And when they, they originally disqualified all the Russians because it was pretty clear what was going on. And so if you disqualify all the Russians that moves Sarah up to fourth anyway, before you pull all this BS with the, yeah. the, 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 the running, uh, the ice temperature. So it's, that's my last, you know, experience with Olympic sport. I grew up obsessed with it and crying when a a Canadian would, would do well, you know, and occasionally, you know, over, over the years, my, 
what, what would you call it? My, my watching or how I watched the Olympics and how I appreciate it became nuanced. And so what I found was I appreciated the performances that weren't necessarily the gold medal winning performance. Sure. And where someone came from and the, um, you know, the, the people who like the Kelly Forbes, frankly, yeah. the Ke Kelly didn't go to an Olympics, but the Kelly Forbes of the world who from a, you know, own the podium targeted talent ID perspective had no business being there. Uh, Max, oh, what's the Nordic combined Max Thompson. Do you ever familiar with that name? So <laughs> after I like, the next day after I won, I'm sitting in the mess hall with my peers. And, and it was a new story that I was the oldest yeah. guy who won a medal. And Max Thompson, who was 18 or 19, who was a Nordic combined guy who I'd never met before, comes up to me in the dining hall, never having crossed paths with me before in my life and said, hey, man, I just saw your bio, uh, firefighter gold medal senior citizen way to go and gives me a high five it's like there are people out there that you know did not suffer did not you know or or i did not struggle at all yeah. everything was paid for we were the top team in the world we were targeted as medal potential and rightly so you know we we came first second and fourth and we didn't have a want in the world. We had gone to wind tunnels, this sort of thing. And Max Thompson gave his jacket away at the closing ceremonies to some, an official from another country who took his skis on the plane with her because he couldn't afford the baggage charges. Gotcha. Like it's, there are two different, you know. Yep. No, there's I two different ones. millionaire. Yeah. I am not, I have no idea what the Michael Phelps of the world, you know, how Usain they would experience the yeah. Olympics yeah. or the, you know, or the, yeah. I have no, I have no contact with that world, but, but my world and the Max Thompson's world, those are two completely different things. And I had it easy. Like I had it, I had a cakewalk. Duff, you miss the, like there's, there's no beer league skeleton. Would you, would you ever, well, there, is, there is actually, is there beer league skeleton? Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. It, and it's there, there is uh Denny Simon. Uh, is, I can I have no idea how old he is now, but when I was still sliding, so, or, or at least involved. So let's say 2014 was the last time I was ever even standing at the track. Yeah. And prior to that, Denny Simon became the first guy that I knew who could beat his age. So his downtime was 62 seconds and he was 63 or 64. <laughs> and it's, it's, I think Denny was one of the first people that I ever saw, like just this old, <laughs> um, an old go-kart guy. Actually, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think. And, and uh, I, I remember standing in the Chrysler and watching and hearing as he come down and, and, and I, I said to the person beside me, is, is that that guy's face dragging on the ice? He said, yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I got to try this. You know, there are some of the guy like, and it's beer league is 
beer is involved. Okay. And uh, good on them. And uh, do you want to? Have you? Will you? No. 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 Um, I. I've had dreams actually. The last time I ever, literally, the last time I ever lie, went lay down on a sled was at the Trino Olympics. It was, eh? Okay. Yeah. And I had dreams of making a comeback and finishing 35th and just cursing my ego for why would you, why would you do that? Now, don't get me, don't get me wrong, Rob, because there were times when I was coaching where I, where I, it was very hard to keep my ego in check because, you know, I had, I can do this examples, two examples where I just wish I had a video of me. So I, but, but I was thinking, okay, give me a sled and I will show you how to do There's a, you know what? It relates back to this old Ryan Davenport story. And I kind of wish that I had the chance to do what Ryan did. And it's sort of funny because corner one in Calgary for a lot of people and for myself and for, for many scouts and athletes, it's a, it's one of the trickiest corners. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that it's, it's banked. And it's so short that it's almost impossible, whether you go early into the corner, whether you go late into the corner, you can't, there's no G-force, right? Because it's, it's not, you're not, the G-force isn't pushing you onto a wall. Right. And, and when that happens, you have something to push against. It's just take a flat surface and angle it slightly. So it's almost impossible not to be too high, too late on that corner and sort of fall off that corner and hit the right wall before you go into corner two. And so there was this, there's this myth. Ryan Davenport is, is a character. He's a little bit socially awkward and he's kind of this, he's thought of as this genius, this, you know, someone who's thinking about it on a level that the rest of us don't understand. And, and part of that legend comes from the Austrian team that contained no less than three current or former world champions at the time sitting on the, 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 there's sort of a railing, not sitting on the track itself, but there's a railing beside the track and watching Ryan Davenport, watching sled after sled come out of corner one and hit the right wall and watching Ryan Davenport come down there and intentionally without moving, without appearing to do anything, come out so early of that corner that he intentionally hits the left wall in front of these guys and just for no reason other than to blow their mind <laughs> easily you know went, i mean that was in a training run but yeah, yeah. that is one of the like that is beautiful coming especially coming from someone who you know is is not a joker is not a sure but there's there are three world champions sitting there and they're trying to learn something from me. That's a mistake. <laughs> All right, that's a brilliant story. Before I let you go, uh, update me on Dark Horse Athletic. What are you guys? I'm you know all things considered, where are we at? What are you up to? Well, um, I've had an opportunity to put a little more effort into our online presence. Mm -hmm. uh, every other organization is doing at the moment, but we, you know, we, uh, you can't do what we do and be six feet apart in a gym because it's about more than anything else running around and having fun and learning something along the way. So we're on a bit of a hold and that's, that's all good. And I look forward to the time when we can start having some fun again.
and it's all good and I'm enjoying the online stuff and obviously I've got a little more time to be thinking about that and yep. I have people supporting me like uh, Scott Bailey at Everactive Schools and um, you know Active for Life different different organi uh, <clears throat> different organizations who support what we're doing we all sort of share each other's stuff and it's been great and you know your involvement also of course with the hitman uh doing one of our challenges for yep. us so. yeah no i that's where we got to be that's that's we're all in this together all right the last one dude and because you've listened to podcasts here it comes you know and you should be expecting it uh before i let you go duff gibson give me your hidden calgary gem well it's it's funny because i list i listened to nikki yep uh, out in arden and she's and i and while she was thinking, I was thinking. And then she said exactly what really? I was about to say. Yes, okay. yes, which is the river. Yes. And uh, I have, uh, I haven't been, I have a couple buddies who love going into the Harvey Passage and, and riding the rapids on really fat, inflatable uh, paddle boards. But there are spots within the city limits that, some people are aware of, I guess, if you sit on a raft and drift downstream, but I, I go uh, above, let's say, the, the Stony Trail. Yep. I, I go yep. upstream from there, and not a lot of people see that, and you could be in the middle of nowhere. You, you would never guess that you were within the city limits, and it's, it, it's beautiful, and you have, you know, you see the odd beaver, you see waterfowl, you see plenty of fish. And uh, and not a lot of people, and you're, it's within the city limits. And and you know, this is as a firefighter, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that there is a advisory to stay off the Elbow River at this moment because yeah. they're yeah. making sure the reservoir stays low. But uh, there's always a couple of weeks every spring where the water is going too quickly to safely get out there. But uh, I, I think it's an absolutely stunningly beautiful thing that we have within our city limits that most people don't know about. I agree. I agree. Now, for so many reasons, you're talking about paddle. We could talk about fly fishing. It's, it's an incredible resource. Um, yeah. My friend, the world needs more Duff Gibson's, not less. Um, keep fighting the fight. You are what we should all aspire to be, sir. Um, this is amazing. I'm, I knew as soon as you said you'd do it, that we'd have a great conversation, but Duff, you never, ever disappoint, pal. Uh, again, I'm so, so appreciative of what you're doing and what you represent, man. Well, I appreciate that very much, Rob. And uh, if uh, I see we're at an hour 44 at this point. That's correct. Yep. Uh, no one will be listening by this. No, they love it. This is the point. They know if they know if I've done over an hour and a bit, they know he's invested. We either, Rob's yelling. We know Rob's yelled at some point. So that they're going to stick around. Well, you have my respect as a from the traditional sports media to be a guy who gets it. It's my absolute pleasure every every time, and it doesn't surprise me at all that I told my family these things usually go about an hour. That uh, we have not stayed within the bounds, and uh, I look forward to the next time. Thank you very much, Rob. I do too. Thanks, pal. Duff is great, but Duff isn't done for the first time in the history of the original Six Feet Conversation podcast. But wait, there's more. After we had stopped, we began to have another conversation, and then I hit record again, and let's pick it up as, as Duff 
Um, obviously, you know, Calgary's an, an epicenter. We've talked about that. Uh, respect in sport. Sheldon Kennedy, uh, his group, they're out of Calgary. They've done so much good across the nation. And, and Sport Calgary's meant to be an advocacy group. And, and Duff had a bit of a challenge for us. My podcast, I can do whatever I want. Okay. So let's keep going. Specifically, you ask kids why they quit. And Steve Norris, like this is part of his presentation, right? It's, it's we know exactly why kids quit. Yep. It's it used to be for fun. It's too serious. It's too much about wins and losses. Uh, and then he goes right up to junior aged hockey players. Why do you still play hockey? You you're not gonna you're not on track to make the NHL. Why do you still play? It's fun. Why did you quit junior aged hockey? It's not fun anymore. So we know it's undeniable why kids don't want to play anymore. Yep. There are, there are many reasons, but the number one reason, regardless of the sport, regardless of the age, it's always the same number one reason. So why? Why is that? Why? Uh, how do you how do you deal with that? Oh, frick! I lost. I had a really good example. I'm glad you turned the radio on. Oh, it's or, fine. No, it's fine. Or, I'm not going anywhere because I, you know, it's funny you bring it up because one of the things that I learned from the second iteration of um, Respect and Sport was, and you you flirted with it a bit, and a lot of guests do, is the importance of the post game drive home. Like that might be the single biggest thing, Duff, from one man's opinion, of of what keeps or pushes kids out of sport. So, so my idea, sorry, yep, my idea was something related to respect in sport that's slightly more cerebral, ties into the drive home, ties into why kids quit, and it's because we make it too much about the the wins and losses. And if you talk to a you know Bonnie Blair, someone I mentioned before any there's no individual sport athlete as you know count the medals whatever who doesn't get this it's a because they because most uh, you only know them as the champion and for most of their lives they were not the best so how do we de-emphasize the winning well step one is understanding all the ways we emphasize the winning and it happens in very subtle ways if it happens in some amazing amazingly subtle ways and it happens in some very obvious ways so my thing is when i go and watch kids whether they're my kids or not but my my thing when i go to watch youth sport is i cheer for both teams Mm -hmm. i cheer for good plays i cheer for effort and character and success or a great save a great shot a great goal or a great save so i'm not i'm not projecting that I'm happy when my kid does well and I'm silent when they don't do well because that's a message. Yep. And that's a message right in exactly in line with why kids don't want to play. So to ignore that at your kid's peril. I, and that's, if you put it in, in terms like that, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy to, to understand. And people think, you know what, you want to, you want the kids to be, you want your kids. I've had one parent, more than one parent say, I want my kid to hate losing or my kid cried after that loss. And I see that as a good thing because it shows me they really want to win. Well, it shows you that they're going down the line of exactly why most kids don't want to play because it's not about the fun anymore. So um, no, I think if, if sport Cal, because I don't know who else would do it, right? Well, I if think I, have you talked to Sheldon and Wayne? no, Katrina. Well, because I, I, you know, and I know Sheldon Wayne well enough to know that 
You know, this is the kind of feedback people are looking for. Here's what I think about this, and I'd love you to, to kind of comment on this. I have yet to see a study of athletes, young athletes, young kids, that ever puts winning in the top 10 of anything, right? They, that's, it's never. And I have been to coaching clinic after coaching clinic after coaching clinic, and brilliant people have put that, that information up there. And in, invariably, there's one or two coaches that stick their hand in the air and go, well, that's wrong because my kids enjoy winning the most, which right away I know who they are. Right away I know what kind of experience those kids are having. And that's the, the thing that we have to get past. We have to, we have to get them to stop. Don't speak. Don't speak because what you're saying is a lie, right? Well, it's – but it's – it's their interpretation of the truth. Right. Well, and, and and it would be misleading to say kids don't enjoy winning more than they they would prefer to win if they had a choice between winning and losing. But it's not the number one reason. It's never the number one reason, right? No. No. And it's it's what interferes with participation. So I want my kids I don't care if they're a little bit upset, but I don't want them worrying about it more than five minutes after the game. Did you see that video last year that Jason Weimer, the former NHLer, put out of his kids' Adam team? And they just and they just put it up and they said, five minutes after we lost the cities, and the kids are dancing. They're dancing and they're having fun and everything like that. And I thought, that's... This is what Hockey Canada, Hockey Calgary, this is what they ought to be. This is what they, this is a commercial. This is, this is the best thing we could ever have, right? I thought it was fantastic. It's like, if you talk to a social scientist, if you looked at it from that perspective, there are people who would have a gut negative reaction to that because they want to make winners and blah, blah, blah. That's actually advanced. Like that is cutting edge social science yep. for creating elite athletes. Yep. It it also is hand in hand with still wanting to play hockey when you're 60 or 70. That's right. Which doesn't make it a bad thing. No. In fact, that's a bigger, that's of more importance than who's going to be great. But the, presumably the reason you yell at a kid is because you want them to be great and it's serious stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's a message that goes down the line of having them not participate anymore. Right. Okay. Yeah. So my promise to you is I will carry this mantle forward. Okay. Yeah, because I I wholeheartedly agree in it, and I think I, I I think for so many reasons we live in the greatest city in the world, and I think one of it is because Sheldon Kennedy and and Wayne live here, and and respect from sport respect in sports started here. I think because of all the female leaders we have in sport in this city, I think we got so much going on, and this is where it comes from. And and as Sport Calgary, I think. I can speak for the rest of my directors. We have a, a responsibility to continue that forward, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it would be the only – well, respect in sport would – you could say the same thing about respect in sport. But if you got parents to take a step back from emphasizing who wins and who loses mm-hmm. and focused on a love, of, a love of the game, which you you could have an easier sell from that perspective because name an elite – professional superstar and then if they wrote a biography they'll talk about a formative period where they were kicked out of the house and they played 
you know, got in trouble because they didn't come home when the light, street lights were on and got a baseball in the face. Like, why you play baseball in the dark? I have no idea. Like, at some point, yeah. there's gonna, you're going to lose some brain cells there. But that's what happened night after night as, you know, Mike Matheny developed a love of the game. So you could sell it from that perspective. But if there was a, hey, let's, let's not make a kid worry that they didn't win is actually right in tune with long-term participation and elite performance. And, so, he- and health. And yeah. health. Yeah. Long-term right? participation. I, I yeah, agree. I agree. No, I best line I ever heard in hockey was, my job isn't to make a single NHL player out of 23 players. It's to make 23 beer league players out of a single team. That's, yeah. that's what hockey – that should be the mantra for hockey and all other sports. Right? Yeah. It shouldn't be, can they get to the next level? Can they be playing this in four decades? And you've yeah. just proven there's beer league skeleton. So it gives yeah. me hope. <laughs> well, my, it's similar to my buddy Nathan Sicorias, who coached his kids in hockey. And his quote was, uh, these kids are unstoppable. And I don't think I've taught them a thing about hockey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this time we're finished. How about that, ladies and gentlemen? The Olympic gold medalist, Duff Gibson. Uh, maybe more importantly than that, keeping us all safe as a member of the Calgary Fire Department. Incredible conversation. Love talking to Duff. If only he would open up and tell us what he really thinks. He is the freaking best. So make you sh- make sure you check out Dark Horse Athletics. Uh, make sure you follow Duff Gibson on social media. It's well worth your while. Make sure you follow this podcast. If you can, go to Spotify and, and subscribe. Or I uh, it was iTunes. I guess it's Apple Podcasts now and do that. Uh, I'm going to let you go. A little bit of a longer one. Enjoyed it. Reminder, we're down to... Uh, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays now we're dropping podcasts. Just a slight change. It was getting to be a little bit much for some people. They were getting backlogged, so we just thought we'd that, and now we're starting to, you know, things are lifting a little bit. Just thought it might be easier on everybody if we go to a a three-day-a-week drop. So hopefully the same great conversations, and I hope you understand why. All right, uh, enough of me. We'll be back soon. My name is Rob Kerr. This has been the original Six Feet Conversation Podcast at SportCalgary.ca.